Welcome to the second episode of Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is playwright, actor, director, blogger, teacher, activist, extraordinaire, Michael Jean Sullivan. Michael is a man of many hats. He's the head writer and one of the main actors and directors for the Tony Award-winning San Francisco Mime Troupe. And for those who don't know the Mime Troupe, they are not mimes. Their slogan is, always outspoken, never silent, and they have been doing free political musical theater in the parks in San Francisco, plus touring the nation for the past 51 years. In addition to his work with the Mime Troupe, Michael is an in-demand actor and director in top-tier professional theaters in the Bay Area and beyond. He's also written a range of political commentary, including 10 years as a regular columnist for the Huffington Post. He's written a number of plays, including an adaptation of George Orwell's 1984 that premiered in L.A. in a production by the Actors Gang, directed by Tim Robbins, and has since been performed all over the world in places as far-flung as Australia, Argentina, Hong Kong, and most recently, Ukraine. In addition to his own creative work, he has taught and lectured on playwriting and artistic activism at colleges and universities around the country, and he currently teaches playwriting at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Now, I first met Michael in the summer of 1989 when I was interning with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, and it was his first summer as an actor there. I got to know Michael's work really well that summer, because when you're an intern with the Mime Troupe, you watch the show 30 or 40 times. And I have to tell you, I was riveted. First of all, the show, which was called Seeing Double, was an amazing funny, deeply moving show about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in which Michael, who's African-American, was double cast as an Israeli young man and a Palestinian young man who happened to look identical and end up switching places for a few days. This is when I first got to witness Michael's ability as an actor to switch from one role to another with lightning speed and precision, and I was blown away. Since then, I've had the opportunity to work with him as a co-writer on the Mime Troupe's 2013 show Ripple Effect, and he's also acted in and directed various iterations of my musical, The Fourth Messenger. So without further ado, welcome, Michael Gene Sullivan. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Tanya. So given the range of your accomplishments and activities, which are astonishingly plentiful, my first question is, how do you do it? How do you do all this and still have time to eat, sleep, and spend time with your wife and child? Well, I don't know. It's like <laughs> you, know, when you find yourself, uh, hopefully, kind of in a zone when you're doing whatever the thing is you're doing. And the different things that I do between acting, writing, directing, and whatever, they overlap enough so that it's easier for me and sometimes to do two things at once. It's not like multitasking, which is impossible as much as it is uh, kind of focusing on one thing and then shifting and focusing on something else and then shifting and focusing on something else. And in the meantime, when I'm not doing any of those things, I take constant vacations. I mean, just constant, like every day, just where I'll shut down everything I'm doing and I go for a walk or I go sit in in the backyard. We're in an apartment building, but it has a nice secluded backyard. Or I just sit down and, you know, and just go, okay, now I'm going to watch a a film noir. Or um, I listen to radio plays a lot. These things that are they rest the part of my brain that allows me to refocus when I get back to the other thing. When I go, okay, now I'm going to write. Now I feel the mood to write. And I think that's a part of it too, is that I do the things when I'm in the mood to do them. Mm. 
I don't try to force myself. I know some people that works fine for them, get up every day and write from 10 to two or something like that. But my schedule is way too wacky to try to do that. I might be in rehearsal. I might have an audition. I can't try to get that kind of regular uh, schedule around it. So instead, I do it when I want to do it. It's kind of childish, but hey, it's worked so far. <laughs> and so, you know, I might go days without being in the mood to write. I might go for a walk. I, I was saying that, you know, the other day I went for a walk. They had the 10,000 steps a day thing. I went for a 20,000 step walk, wow. you know, all the way down to, out at Ocean Beach. I walked all the way down to Daly City and back. And it was dark. By the time I got back, it was like 9.30. No one was on the beach. It was empty. And I was like, this is great. And I had a notebook with me. And I was just walking very slowly. And then by the time I got to the end or near the end, it was too dark to write. But finally, I was in the mood to write. And then I could go, okay, now I can go home, sit down, and just and wrote for the rest of the night. So wow. part of it's about constantly taking breaks and real vacations. And part of it is waiting until I'm in the mood to do something. I wrote much of a Mind Troop show while I was in the green room of a show I was understudying at ACT. That was the time and I was in the mood. Wow. Okay. So you didn't need to be any special place. You could be in that green room with people around you, but shut it out. And now I'm going to write. Yeah. That's the thing. For me, it's kind of falling off a cliff into whatever it is I'm doing. If I'm working on my lines and then I'm working on them and I'm working on them for something. And then I go, Oh, that gives me an idea. And I could pull out my notebook and write down a couple of things. I mean, it's a little disingenuous in that I also tell people that on some level, I'm always writing. Some part of my brain, for me, playwriting is very much about problem solving, setting up an almost ridiculous problem and then trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so some part of my brain is always working on the problem. And I'm going off and I do other stuff and I distract myself and do all of this. And then I go, aha, and I have my epiphany and then I can come back and work on that. Oh, I will say one thing we were talking about writing. There are times where... When I do, I will totally submerge myself into writing mm -hmm. um, where I, it's like, okay, I'm stuck in some way. I don't have an idea or I have a deadline that has to come down and I have to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So I will rent a, like a hotel room or at one point that we had one of our, uh, one of our mind troop supporters. And also one time when I worked on a screenplay where they just put me in a hotel for four days and I just closed the curtain turn the clock's face down so I don't know when it, whether it's day or night. And I just wrote. And if I didn't write, I was asleep or I'd watch old movies. Oh, oh, this is another thing. When I go for these long walks, which can go on for, you know, I'll get up in the morning and not come home until night. One of the most important things is to do whatever I want to do. I will, if I'm walking down the and there's a restaurant, I go, huh, I've never been there. Then I will go to that restaurant. If there's a, you know, a park, then I go, oh, yeah, I never walked that way. Then I go that way. If there's a movie I want to see or a play, I just walk right in and do it right in the moment so that I'm very selfishly feeding my brain with anything it wants to do that could be a distraction. Uh, I remember one time it was like, God, you know, I was out for a little walk and I was like, I'm just going to keep walking down the street because I haven't walked down all the way from where I live to the marina district. And so I walked up and over Pacific Heights and then down and there was the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was like, I should go over and walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. So I walked across the Golden Gate Bridge and then I walked back and I got to the marina and I found a park bench in the Presidio and I wrote like 20 pages of this script. And then I was walking home and there was a movie playing and I was like, I've heard about this film. I should see it. So I walked in, I watched the movie. I, you know, came out, it was like 11 o'clock at night. Then I walked home and then I wrote like another 10 pages. So it's... Part of it is being completely self-indulgent. 
not leaving any question undone in my head. And how does that work out on the home front <laughs> with your wife, Valina Brown? Well, Valina knows. She, she, she's like, oh, Michael's writing again. And so sometimes I just get up and go, I got to go for a walk. And she's like, okay. I used to get together with a friend of mine sometimes in the middle of the night. I would just go, I'm going out for cocoa. And Valina would know I was getting together with a friend of mine, a magician, Christian Cadigal, who used to be in the mime troupe. And the two of us would just go somewhere in the middle of the night and drink hot chocolate and talk through ideas. And she's an artist as well. So I guess you yeah. have to work out trading off who gets to be the focused one at given times. Or... Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's always the thing. Through We've been together really, uh, you know, we started dating in 1980. So wow. we've been together for quite some time. And so, yeah, always knowing it's like, how can we be supportive of the other person? They're doing this gig. There's a point where when we uh, had our son and he was uh, like one and a half and I was doing a show and Valina was doing a show. We've both been asked to do shows and we're having this serious discussion trying to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? Or is one of us going to have to say no? And really at that point, right, right that night, I got a phone call from a small all-woman clown circus in San Francisco called Circus Finale. And they asked me if I'd be interested in directing their circus uh, coming up in the next year. And I thought about it and I said, yes, absolutely. I will love to direct your circus, but you don't have to pay me. In exchange, I want childcare now. And Uh, so for a while, when our son was a small, we worked it out an hour to hour thing. For about two years, his babysitters were all clowns (laughs) or Christian, who was a magician. I remember one time, one of the clowns actually had to pick Zachary up after school because Valina and I were both in rehearsal and she showed up in full clown gear. I'm here to pick up Zachary. For Zachary, this was totally normal. Having clowns all the time. And magic was just like, well, doesn't every kid have this? (laughs) So those are those kinds of things where you have to kind of figure your way through as an artist, always looking for the way to make it work. When Zachary was born, we had to time out his birth. We actually had to sit down with a calendar and gave ourselves a window of conception, knowing that if he was conceived at this point, and then he'd come pop out at this point, and that would give Lena this many months to recover so that she could be in the show. And then the next show I was writing and directing so I could hold Zachary and, and, you know, keep the baby while she was on stage. Fresh take on a fertility calendar. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Let's talk about your voice as a writer a bit. And now I'm thinking specifically about your political commentary, your blog posts and columns, and more recently, Facebook posts. These manage to be both shocking in their directness and also really funny. Like sometimes I'm reading them and my jaw just kind of drops and I'm like, wow, he just like really named that thing. Like you wrote a piece in 2017 directed at people who didn't vote and the title was, It Doesn't Matter? F you. So it's kind of all right there in the title. Or in 2012, you wrote a piece for Huffington Post called, I Hate Nazis and I'm Okay With That. And I'm just going to read a small excerpt from that piece because I think it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about. You wrote, For anyone who feels the need to say some crap about how hating Nazis is the same as being a Nazi, don't. Nazis hate blacks and Jews and everyone else because they see others as subhuman scum based on skin color and parentage, things that are intrinsic to the person, 
whereas Nazis have, of their own free will, chosen a philosophy of extermination. And then later you say, no, I don't think I should love my enemies, and no, I am not diminished in any way by my hate. Oh, and I can hate both the game and the player, because anyone who freely chooses to play a hateful game deserves to be hated. And I have enough hate for both, because hate, like love, springs from an infinite well. And that that ending makes me laugh every time. It's somehow almost Shakespearean in its scope. (laughs) So to me, this is very courageous writing because you're naming something most people wouldn't name. I mean, sure, you're taking on Nazis. That's easy because they're horrible. But you're also taking on the many voices within your own community that would say, don't hate. So what I want to ask you is, where do you get the courage to trust your own voice this way? And is it ever hard for you? Do you ever worry how people will respond? I don't think so. (laughs) I think I get it from my parents, I Mm. guess. My father and my mother were both reasonably courageous people. They, Mm. you know, I was born in Detroit. Um, Here's a short story. My family moved to Los Angeles and we were being very political and stuff. And uh, Mm. this is in the 60s. And my mother worked for the uh, Bobby Kennedy for president campaign. She was a Kennedy girl. And she was there the night he was assassinated. Mm. And so after that night, the whole family, I was a little kid, and we stayed up and we watched the results. And then she came home. And then the next day, she flew to Detroit. And we didn't know why. About two weeks later, she flew back to Los Angeles. And then in a couple of days, we all got in the car and parents said, we're taking a trip. And we drove to San Francisco and we never went back to Los Angeles. And when it turned out it happened, I didn't find this out until after my father uh, had passed away and I read some of his journals. We were kind of in witness protection with the FBI. The FBI thought my mother might have been a witness and they did not want her to be killed like so many witnesses were after John F. Kennedy's assassination. So they asked my parents where they wanted to go, you know, while the case was being figured out and all of this and not to tell anybody. I couldn't tell my friends where we were going. We didn't know we were moving. And so my parents picked San Francisco because they thought that's where the revolution was going to start. And they wanted to be at the epicenter of the revolution. So that's how I ended up in San Francisco. Cool. So it was very important to my parents to be outspoken. It is like, you know, I grew up going to rallies and protests that ended up being riots. And also both my parents, especially my father, was very logical. Mm. And so that logic is part of what I do when I'm writing political pieces. To just say, this makes sense. This equals this. This is Mm. what this means. And like I said, with Nazism, people have chosen to become Nazis or Klansmen or whatever fanatical, hateful group of their own free will as adults. They chose that. Whereas people don't choose to be, you know, a person of color. They just are. They are from this country. They are Black or Jewish or... So to be hated for something that is intrinsically you by someone who made a choice, those things are very different. And so judging someone, people say, oh, you're so judgmental. Of course I am. We are all judgmental. When Martin Luther King said you want to judge someone by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin, he's being judgmental, isn't he? You know? (laughs) So that's it. You want to judge someone by the content of their character. And if the content of their character is crap, that's how you judge them. You've referred to the adage, if you want to tell people the truth, you'd better make them laugh or they'll kill you which I did a bit more research since we last talked, and I now believe it was George Bernard Shaw that may have said it, although there's still room for debate that Oscar Wilde said it. So talk to me about that. Why is it important to make people laugh? Well, I think that that's, uh, even looking at ancient uh, comedies, 
um, you know, being with the mime troupe uh, uh, and talking about the definition of mime is the exaggeration of everyday life and story and song. And hmm. mimos was this type of acting and type of play creation in ancient Greece that had to do with basically, if you're going to do a play about uh, Pericles being a dick, you can't just put Pericles in the play because he might have you thrown off a cliff. So what you do is you do an exaggerated version where everybody knows it's Pericles, but you can still go, <laughs> not really. So that kind of having that objectivity when it comes to really harsh truths allows you to use comedy to kind of crack people's heads open. As, as Valina, my wife, Valina Brown says, using comedy as the delivery system mm. for the harsh truths. I always say it's like somebody's head is an egg and you crack it open and you put some stuff in there. People sometimes have a hard time dealing with the hypocrisies of daily life because they're too ugly to deal with, too painful to deal with. And so when you're going to tell them something that's harsh and true about their existence or about how they are tacitly helping uh, an oppressive system, you got to be kind of mean about it. You've got to just say this is what's happening. But you don't want to have it so confrontational that they back off of it and they don't get the point. They don't see themselves. They don't see anything in it worthwhile. They just see a rant. Mm -hmm. So comedy inside of whether it's a play or if it's an essay I'm writing, the comedy is there to keep drawing the person along with lots of little comedic observations that can then help them each time. It's like a rung on a ladder. They just keep going in each joke or each you know, in a play, it's a, the songs or, or comedic bits that help the person kind of hold on for the next drum. Okay, that was really funny. You know, mm. I, I understand. I want the comedy to be of realization frequently, you mm. know, to realize the, the hypocrisy, to see how ridiculous these two, the juxtaposition of these two things actually are. And the closer you put them together, the funnier mm-hmm. they are. And do you feel the comedy in some way then loosens them up for the more emotional moments it's very much building towards those moments Mm -hmm. you know where you have lots of little truths of hypocrisy and little reveals that are funny so that when you get to a point where you're doing something very serious Mm -hmm. you have hooked them in with um kind of real life observations you've kind of got them a little bit a little bit until suddenly somebody dies or something horrible happens and they're invested I wrote a play a few uh, years ago called Freedom Land, and uh, it was a tragic farce. The show was very farcical. You had the black grandfather who has always convinced his grandson to stay in the army because he wants to train him to be the leader of the revolution, and he wants him to get all this military training. The real reason he wants him to stay in the army is that he doesn't want him to be at home because being a young black man his odds of getting killed on the street are greater in the United States than they are if he's in the army. They've got this back and forth going on. And uh, meanwhile, there's the undocumented immigrant who lives upstairs who's from Mexico. But whenever the police show up, he drops into this accent as an old Jewish man who's fascinated with pinochle. He always tells the cops, you want to play pinochle? And they go, ah, we got to get out of here. So using all of this and the police keep showing up and knocking on the door and coming in with their guns and then leaving and coming in in their guns with the leaving enough so that it starts to get kind of ridiculous. And it's the war on drugs and the war on blacks in the United States. And then we get all the way to the end and 
finally the grandfather and the grandson embrace and realize that they're on the same side and it is a bigger struggle than just taking care of your grandson. And it's important to listen to the other generations and the struggles they have. And they finally hold on to each other and a big cheer and sigh and applause comes up from the audience. And at that point, the door gets kicked in by the cops who are doing the wrong door uh, raid. And the now empowered team of this grandfather and grandson turn on them and they end up in an argument and the police kill them. And the audience went dead silent. No pun intended. <laughs> they went silent and then one guy in the audience just screamed, no! And I was like, yes. Because despite all of the farce, despite all of the theory, despite all of the comedy and all of this stuff going on, this is a life and death story. And so after that, then we see the police officer who did the shooting get exonerated. And that scene's going on while the uh, dead bodies are still on stage. They're just there where you hear the, the press conference with the cops about how what really happened. And then those two, the dead characters stand up and start singing a song to the audience called How Can You Live, which is how can you live in a world like this? How can you live in a world where this happens every day? We have to stop this. But it's a comedy. Yeah, it's, so, it's a, a tragedy disguised as a comedy. Yeah, that's why I, I had to come up with something. So I called it, it's a tragic farce. Mm. Um, but when I submitted that script somewhere else, the thing I remember was their uh, literary manager read the script and then just called me and said, how did you make such a horrible thing so funny? Mm. I was like, well, their tragedy and comedy are not that far apart. Wow. The Mime Troupe every year chooses a different political issue to zero in on. And I'm wondering, given the wide range of things that feel critically important at any given moment, how do you choose? It sometimes is not easy. Like we're having difficulty right now because things are changing so fast. And a big part of what the Mime Troupe has always done is to try, we have to predict the future mm -hmm. because we have to start writing a show um, whenever we're going to start writing it, but it's going to open normally the 4th of July and it's going to run through uh, September and sometimes October. And we need this show to feel relevant throughout the run. Frequently, I have people come up to me, they'll see a show at opening and they'll come towards the end and they'll go, oh, you rewrote it to incorporate all this stuff. And it was like, no, that was in there the first time. I'm trying to write it so that it always feels like it just got written because because I'm reading the news constantly. I get up every morning and I read all of these articles from around the world every day. That is the one thing I do all the time. It is my main addiction, always reading the news so that I can kind of lob something out that I know it's not going to hit the audience until the middle of the run. That's when they're mm. going to hear about it. Yeah. And that's, that's, What's one of the things that's difficult every once in a while, we'll have people who want to write for us or they have these ideas and the idea they're coming up with is it's right on the, on the front page of every newspaper in the United States in February. And we're like, but the show doesn't open for a while. We can't write that show. If we were going to do something that's going to open in a month, maybe, but we have to be able to do a much longer throw or to pick something that is something that everybody's talking about and something that something else that everybody's talking about and put them together in a way that makes sense, that predicts the future in a way like with freedom land, you know, uh, police brutality and uh, uh, institutionalized racism uh, and uh, xenophobia have 
definitely been things, but to take all of that together with the war on drugs and put it into one thing and go, see, there's a link here with how we are kept afraid and how we are told we're supposed to be. So that's a big part of it. And finally figuring out what that thing is. So this year we had a show. I'd already pitched a show to the collective and we said, yeah, let's do that. And mm-hmm. so we were doing research and writing. And then I just said, we have to stop because things are too much up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen on so many levels. So I know you had to push this year's show from a July opening to an August opening. And of course, who knows what's going to happen does that mean you don't know yet what the topic's going to be this year? Well, I mean, we want it's an election year, so the show will have to do with the election. And we have a structure, but figuring out with people, you know, staying at home, people social distancing, trying to figure out how big of an impact that has to have on the script. Does it have to have a huge impact on the script and change the plot completely? Or does the script simply have to reference it and have it be the world that they're living in, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting to see what happens. I don't want it to be, don't want to be wrong. So the mime trip describes itself as revolutionary. And I I want to ask you, what does that mean to you in today's world? Well, you know, people throw the word revolution around without really even thinking about what the word means. A revolution is when that which is at the bottom goes at the top and the top goes to the bottom. That's what the revolution means. So a revolutionary change is when those who are oppressed become empowered. And economically, it's when those who actually create the wealth of the country, that wealth benefits them first. And so what we have in the United States right now is we have corporations and we have Wall Street and we have for-profit government and all these things that are focused on shareholders and CEOs and making sure that our economic aristocracy stay in power. And that they benefit first, like when that tax cut went through and all of these CEOs got raises. A lot of the workers didn't get raises. A lot of the workers, a great many workers were laid off. But the CEOs, they don't make anything. (laughs) They're way overpaid. And, you know, the people who are actually making the things are the workers. What a capitalist does is they make money off of capital. That's their goal. They make money off of their money. But it's the workers that are actually doing the stuff. It's the worker that makes the laptop. It's the worker that digs the ditch, that works on the farm, that works in the store. And this is a great thing. I know it's weird to say, but about the pandemic is this idea of the essential worker. That idea is now going to be planted in everyone's head. If someone is an essential worker during a pandemic, they're an essential worker the rest of the time too. Mm. And so what we need is the revolution that has to take place in people's minds is first the realization that there's no such thing as a middle class. There's only the working class and the owning class. That's it. The middle class was invented in the 1950s, really, as a marketing thing. If you're middle class, you're basically a working class person who identifies with your boss Mm -hmm. rather than with your fellow workers. More people need to realize that being in the working class is a great thing. That means you live by the sweat of your own brow and that we are the vast majority and that the wealth of the nation needs to benefit us first. So that's revolutionary thought. And what do you see the role of the artists being in that revolution? Well, I think that the role of the artist is to constantly show the contradictions, to constantly show the hypocrisy to the audience, whether it's through painting or sculpting or or writing or whatever it is, to show 
that it's always got to be a challenge to the audience. It's not just purely entertainment. I did a speech for Theater Bay Area one time where I talked about the importance of activist art. And at one point I said, you know, art for art's sake. The only thing that's art for art's sake is porn, internet porn. If you're interested in art for art's sake, something that's not trying to change the world at all, internet <laughs> porn. The audience should always leave the theater different people than they entered. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, if you could change one person, I'm like, if you can change only one person, you have failed miserably. Because it, mm-hmm. it's going to take a lot more than that. You need to change everybody at least a little bit. And the goal of every play, as I tell students, is to change the whole world. You don't shoot for less than that, because shooting for less than that is just masturbation, and we've gotten back to internet porn again. One of the stories, I was doing an interview for a newspaper one time, and they said, well, is there any example of, of art really making a difference? And I said, well, there's a big one. Back in the middle of the Civil War, you know, the Civil War, when it started, People were like, well, what are we really fighting for? We're fighting to keep the country together. We're fighting against states' rights and fighting for states' rights. But everybody knew it was about slavery. Mm-hmm. And uh, the North, it was a struggle. A lot of people were like, well, who cares? We're racist ourselves. We don't care about slavery that much. How bad can it be? Because the slave owners keep telling us it's great. They're telling us that they're bringing these poor benighted Africans to Jesus. They're telling us that they're taking care of them and they would you know, have no use of themselves if they weren't slaves. And so... Harry Beecher Stowe writes Uncle Tom's Cabin before the war. And that actually shows some of the brutality, not the constant violence and rape that slavery was, but it shows a lot of it. And um, it's the first time somebody's really showing something from the slave's point of view. And, and so it has an impact on the North. But in the middle of the war, Emancipation Proclamation happens where the North finally says, this is about slavery. And Abraham Lincoln meets Harriet Beecher Stowe. And he's huge, tall, and she's like, you know, I don't know, four foot two or something. She was tiny. She was a hobbit. (laughs) And uh, he says there, so you're the little lady that started this big war. Now, what he knew and what everybody knew was that it wasn't the book that started the war because most Americans were illiterate. It was the play version. Oh, I did not know that. All of these stage adaptations of the play, and they played all over the United States. And again, this is at a point in American history, where everybody went to theater. It's almost hard for us to imagine nowadays how everywhere theater was. When a town was founded, they'd have a saloon and a whorehouse and a theater. People loved theater. If somebody could read, they would read Shakespeare to people. You know, at like, seriously, like at mining camps. And that, you know, where all the cowboys are sitting around and the horses and the cows are over there or up in the mountains, people were passionate about it. So uh, hundreds of thousands of people, well, over 100,000, I think it's like 200,000, something like that, that are recorded to have seen the play version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that's what impacted everything. Suddenly people seeing that oppression on stage, seeing that violence, that's what changed their minds. And so I would say there have been a lot of different bits of art that have impacted in different ways. But in American history, I think that's the biggest one. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I so appreciate your taking the time. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't go off too much on the politics part, but it's all part of the writing. It is all part of the writing. It's all part of the art. It's all part of life. Yep. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please join me again next week when I'll be talking to the wonderful singer, songwriter, environmental activist, Vienna Tang. Meanwhile, take good care and stay off leash.